Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for providing for us in so many ways. You provide for us our daily bread and you provide for us in so many good things in this world that you've given us to enjoy. And we thank you, Lord, that you are bringing your kingdom on this earth and you've established it in Christ and you're continuing to grow it through your people. So we pray, Lord, that as we study your Lord's Prayer, that we would gain a deeper understanding and and a deeper communion with you through these words. And it's in your Son's name we ask. Amen. So this week we are going over the petition that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and give us today our daily bread. And the big theme for these two lessons is that you know God is really training our hearts and our lives for heaven. Um, praying in Jesus' name is really a lifelong training in taking God's will a little more seriously each day and our wills and desires less seriously. Um, that's really what is going on in this prayer, that the Holy Spirit is showing us the reality of heaven and how He is working on earth today and how He is working through us. Um, and I think one of the best stories in the Bible that really depicts how God's will is being done on earth is the story of Joseph and his brothers, uh, to- told towards the end of Genesis. And it's an interesting family story, which means that it's all about misunderstanding, envy, and violence, unfortunately. Uh, you have this bratty little brother, Joseph, who's antagonizing his older brothers, and he's daddy's favorite. Um, Jacob, his father, loved Joseph with just unashamed favoritism because he was the son of his favorite wife. And Joseph had all these different dreams. If you remember the story, uh, if you can imagine your, like, your kid brother coming up to you and saying that, you know, I had this dream where we're binding sheaves of wheat in the field and all your sheaves bow down to mine. Um, and you could just imagine Joseph's brothers just getting angry, all of them being older and stronger. And, and then he dreamed the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to him. Uh, this guy is just really, really getting arrogant, it seems like, to his brothers. And the brothers said to him, you know, yeah, we'll show you our dream. Um, so they plot against him, if you remember the story, and they attempt to kill him. And... But eventually they settle upon selling Joseph into slavery into Egypt. They take Joseph's coat and they make it all bloody and tear it up with sheep's blood and they bring it to their father. Um, you, can, you can just imagine what kind of hatred they had in their hearts and envy by doing this and trying to break their father's heart in this way. And they said, while we were out at work today, something ate little Joseph. Uh, the big bad wolf came along and just gobbled him up. Um, but through, a, through these series of twists and turns, we see that Joseph, he goes into slavery, and the Lord makes him prosper for some reason. Um, the Lord's presence upon his life and God's grace was so present and recognized that his Egyptian masters and overlords and even Pharaoh start placing Joseph in 
as head over these households. And then during this great famine, which Joseph predicted in his dreams, uh, as a dream in, as he interpreted these dreams, Joseph devises and executes this master plan for saving Egypt and then the known world at the time from hunger. And then who would show up in this huge worldwide famine but Joseph's brothers? And they come begging this royal Egyptian who they think is this supreme master lord over the whole world, begging him for food. And it's none other than their forsaken little brother Joseph. And when he finally reveals himself to them, his brothers tremble. And they're just totally dumbstruck and afraid. And they have really good reason for that because of all that they had tried to do to Joseph. And But Joseph says something to his brother that really reassures them and is basically talking about God's will being done. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Joseph says, that he said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. They really did do that. They really had this evil that they did to them. They did to him. He said, but God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord over all his house and the ruler of all the land of Egypt. So Joseph's statement to his brothers is this amazing affirmation of the grace and power of God, even in spite of all the evil that had happened to him. Um, what seemed like just this purely internal family affair, this family matter, this envy and strife and bitterness and, and, and warring against each other in this troubled, troubled family that God had said is my family, turns, to be a part, turns out to be a part of this huge story of God realizing his will and his purposes in the world. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So this story that begins with resentment and betrayal, like so many of our stories, turns out to be about God at work, preserving his people, saving them in spite of their foolishness and evil. You did not send me here, Joseph tells his brothers. You know, they, the Joseph brothers thought that they were in control and they thought they were getting their wills done when they sold their brother into slavery. But after all these years, many, many, many years later, as we look back on our lives, Joseph looked back and he saw God's hand at work. And he said that, no, someone, some loving presence of God is behind this story, some hand that's greater than the brother's guilt and evil deeds. That there's a, this great author that's behind the story that's acting. And God's dream for the world, for this family that God would bless the whole world through, couldn't be thwarted even by that family. 
even by these evil brothers. And the thing that we take away from a story like this isn't that Joseph is the hero, isn't that he's the hero of the story, but it's God who makes the story worth retelling because he's the author of a different plan that can never be stopped by what happens on earth. That's, that's the amazing thing, that it's a hidden plan for sure. Um, but as Joseph tells his brothers, fear not. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's really what this prayer is about, is that God's will and his plans will triumph. We're not often told how that will happen. Even the Bible doesn't reveal that all the time to us. But we are told that God's plans triumph. And Joseph, just like us, was merely participating in what God is doing in the world. And he just witnessed to it. And he received what God gave him to do. And he was faithful in that calling. And what we see is that God is the one who can shoot with a warped bow, as Martin Luther would say, and ride a lame horse and get to the destination. God is using all these lame people and foolish people and warped people, and he can make a crooked path straight and use that for his plan and purpose. And I think that that can be really striking to us as Americans because we think that life is about our choices or just chance. The lottery of life, you know, um, life is what I do and decide to do, or it's a part of this, you know, roulette wheel of just sheer luck. And I think that that's often why when we think about our lives, when we look back on it or we think about the future, we can feel so helpless and hopeless. If life is all up to us, if life is all about how much we know about ourselves and we look at our brothers and sisters and our families, um, we are doomed if it's all about us. And it's very easy for me to feel this terrible paralysis when I just like start thinking about that in the morning and I get up and I'm like, if, if I'm in control of my future, just look at my past, I just become paralyzed from thinking all, on all those things and, and, and not seeing God plans and purposes at work. If the fate of the world and the outcome of our future is solely in our doing, then a mere course in Western history should convince us that we are without hope. Um, It's easy to feel frail and fearful before the nuclear threats that we hear on the news or AIDS epidemic or ecological crisis or whatever it is. Even going to the DMV, it feels awful. I mean, like just waiting in the DMV line, you're like, is this some cruel joke on life, you know? Um, if it's all choice or chance. But Joseph, at the end of the story, he's able to look back over all of the twists and turns of the plot, and he's able to proclaim that God was able to take all these evil things that we do, even that we do, and bring about something good. 
we're talking about here that this is God's amazing resilience and his sovereignty to bring about his purposes and his intent for the world, and it can't be stumped by our actions. That God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and it's amazing when we, when we have that perspective that when we look back over our lives, it may take years. Oftentimes, we can't see it in the midst of trials. When we're in the midst of it, in the thick of it, it's almost impossible to see God at work. It's, it's scary, and we feel alone in those moments. But it may take a couple years and time and distance and just coming through those things. And we look back and we see God's hand fitting everything together. God's overriding purpose. There was one church father who said that if we look at our lives, it can look like a chicken yard, just full of all these random scratches and tracks in the mud, going this way and that in the confusion. But then through the eyes of faith, like Joseph, we can start to see a pattern come out in God's purpose in our lives. There's some kind of design and direction by God's unseen hand. And that's why Paul can say that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That in the midst of all of these things that are happening, God, all these contradicting kingdoms of this world, that God's kingdom isn't stoppable. Even, even by our own sinful pettiness and foolishness. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not just urging you to do something first. It's not just about bending our rebellious wills to God's will and to get busy doing here on earth what God is doing in heaven. Um, that may be implied, and that's certainly a part of how we act out of this faith. But it's really saying, it's really calling us to see that what to see what God is doing in this world before it even asks anything of us, before we know how to do anything. If you remember back to the the weeks we talked about in the discipleship course, that being a disciple is first about receiving, receiving from God's hands, and witnessing to it. Hello. Uh, then it's about witnessing to it like Joseph did and then participating in what God is doing. So first, we have to receive. So it's about receiving God's kingdom. It's not about us bringing it about. It's us witnessing and like Joseph, seeing God's hand bringing about the good in all this evil around us and then learning to participate in that. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have to gather every Sunday and tell stories to one another, like this story of Joseph in the Bible. Um, we're really seeing, we're learning to re-look at the world and our lives, um, saying that everything is not left up to us. Not Everything is not in our hands. Um, MasterCard is not right when it says you've got the whole world in your hands because you have this credit card. 
They were not the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. Those are the false stories <laughs> that blind us to the working of God in the world. Um, we have to constantly be restoried into God's story and see it through the prism of the Bible, like the story of Joseph. And these stories often sound so great to us because of our selfish hearts. But in reality, those things are far too great of a burden for you to bear to think that everything's in your hand. Um, So we have to gather on a weekly basis, even during the week, to tell each other of our stories and pray and sing in order that we can perceive what is really going on in the world, how God is taking our evil and using it for good. Not just our enemies, but our evil. Um, That we are Joseph's brothers in the story, not just Joseph. And God is taking our evil as God's family, and he's bending it, he's taking that crooked bow, and he's making a straight shot with it. He's turning our crooked paths into straight lines. And that's why we pray, your will be done. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's going to come tomorrow. doesn't mean that there's a specific termination date on when this is going to happen. Uh, like I said, it may take years for us to look back and see God's will in our lives being done. And we know that God isn't slow in fulfilling His promises. Um, but with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. And sometimes one of the, the main functions of prayer is to actually give us something useful to do in the meantime. Um, while we're waiting for God to show up, while we're waiting for God to act, God gives us this prayer. Because this is probably the best thing for us to do while we're waiting for Him to act. Sometimes the most important thing for us to do is to have patience with God. And I think it's important as we look at our own lives for a moment, not just Joseph's stories, but when we look at our own lives and see the painful interruptions in our plans. Like Joseph going down to Egypt, I'm sure that that was not a part of his plans. Um, We see these awful interruptions in our lives and we despair and wonder why God would let these things happen. Um, but what we fail to realize, you know, me especially, it's been hitting me this all this whole week, uh, is that these interruptions are precisely, precisely what life is. There is no life. And then we have these interruptions. The interruptions that we see in life are our lives. Um, What we see as interruptions to our will being done, our kingdom, is precisely God's work. So when we pray this prayer, um, we are actually asking God to interrupt our plans. And as painful as these moments are, they are actually God working out our salvation in us and through us for everyone around us. Um, As we learn to submit our wills and desires in the midst of these trials and tribulations, we see something happen. These interruptions are precisely the context for God's grace to become real in our lives. 
They are the context for God's grace making beauty in an ugly world. Uh, as we learn to, to wait in patience for God to act. It's precisely our trials and life's interruptions that God is what is God what God is using to make our lives fruitful and beautiful in a way that couldn't happen otherwise. And for Christ to bring many sons and daughters to glory. It's precisely your weaknesses and tribulations that you and I showcase God's glory. And that's why Paul can say that his weaknesses are what he boasts in. Isn't that so strange in our day? That God isn't just teaching you a lesson when things don't go your way. Um, they're actually the only way for us to be fruitful. That's the, that's the strange thing. The only way that we become fruitful for God's kingdom and bear his fruit is when he disrupts our plans. I think I was thinking back about Saul's story that we heard last week in the sermon. Um, he did not have patience to wait for God's kingdom to come. He wanted this good thing too much. And so he just overreacted and jumped into things. He sinned because he tried to cut the corners and achieve a good cause, but on his timing. And I think that that's an interesting contrast like with King David. When King David sinned in his weakness with Bathsheba, how did he respond when he was confronted with those things? It's not that God, when he's using us, we're no longer going to sin. We're no longer going to be weak. We're no longer going to be foolish. It's like, how do we respond, though, when God's word does confront us? Do we dig in our heels like Saul and deny everything and blame everyone? Or do we respond in, in repentance and faith? And what does God do in the midst of that? He brings about a son, Solomon. And then later on, Jesus as the line of that. Um, it is precisely in our sins and interruptions that God is at work, working out salvation in our midst, teaching us to take our own selves less seriously and his will more seriously each day. Because he's able to use foolish sinners like us for his greater good. And that's why like when we pray this prayer, we're learning to have patience. We're learning to have hope and patience and recognizes, recognize that in those moments of interruptions, in those moments of weakness, how we respond is really how we open up our lives to each other and show the grace of God that's at work in our lives. If, we're, if the response when those things happen is to build walls and cut people off and push them out when those things happen, that's what King Saul did. And he, he was no longer a part of God's kingdom. But God is able to work through those things in our repentance and faith when we become vulnerable because that's when we actually lean into each other. That's when we build more community. That's when we build friendship. And really, that's when God is at work. And 
That's why when we pray this prayer, it's really about hope and patience. Hope and patience. That all these things that we need for our journey as we see God at work. And we need both of those things. We need both hope and patience because if we're just driven by hope, it can make us actually dangerous when we're not schooled in patience. That may sound strange, but without patience, we're often tempted to storm the walls of injustice, destroying our enemies, and therefore betraying God's way of working through forgiveness. Um, Instead, we're called to be really patient people who are schooled by the, the one who is supremely patient on the cross, our crucified Lord, uh, so that the world can know that love and not violence rules and is breaking into this world. And God's way of dealing with us and our evil is ultimately loving compassion by the cross, the unlimited suffering and patience of God who is so long-suffering with us. And out of that, we are called as Jesus says, to take up our cross and follow God's patience. And that's why we need this prayer in our day of of just constant moral outrage and protest. When we jump the gun, like King Saul, it's in impatience that is where precisely we're made pawns of the devil. It's in our impatience and trying to cut corners that we miss God's kingdom and what he's doing in this world. And so that's why we pray, your will be done. We're asking God's will to be done. I think too often that we are really conditioned to think that prayer is asking for God, asking God for what we want. Dear God, give me this or give me that. Um, But in praying this, we're specifically told to ask for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are attempting to learn slowly and school ourselves in what God to want, what God wants. Uh, Not to receive our heart's desires, but rather so that we can become enthralled and and overcome with God's beauty and the vision, like Joseph was, of what God is doing in the world so that we can forget our stories and the stories that MasterCard sells us for something that's greater and that is greater than what we could imagine. And... And this is a constant theme that we've been hitting on, is that prayer, praise, is not primarily about self-expression. I really think that that's like one of the big dangers in our understanding of worship and prayer today in the Christian life, is that we think it's about self-expression, where in reality, it's God conforming us to his will, slowly filling us up, because by ourselves, we are empty, and we're just... God constantly wants to give us so many good things, but our hands are often too full to receive them. Um, 
And so prayer and praise like this is slowly turning away from our wills, all those things we grasp after, and learning to be filled up by God. That in a lot in a society that's just constantly constantly filled up with philosophies and psychologies and life hacks, techniques and methods of getting what our hearts desire, um, prayer can be a really risky, dangerous thing. And it just doesn't make sense. This kind of prayer doesn't make sense to us. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to pray. Um, in our culture that's like a vast supermarket of our own desires where we're encouraged to just to constantly consume, um, we are just constantly being saying, told that getting what I want is the goal of everything. And if there's a God that exists out there, then he needs to be a part of that plan. He can be a co-pilot in this plan, in my story, my life story, um, but he definitely can't take center stage. And unfortunately, what that does, what, when, what I want becomes the center stage, it actually becomes unattainable. Because there's this ever-rising desire, these ever-rising desires and things that can never be satisfied by all these little things and these little stories that we make up. Because at the back of our minds, I think we know that our stories can't be true. I think everyone knows deep down that their story about their lives doesn't make sense because they made it up. It's so small and fitting into our heart's desires that we know that those things will never satisfy us. That at the end of the day, making our own meaning and purpose in this world is really impossible. Um, that makes us frantic. It makes us depressed and anxious uh, because we know deep down that those things can't give us meaning. And so we lurch going through our whole life from experience just masking, masking and groping for new thrills buying this and drinking that, all in this frantic, never-ending attempt to get what I want. Fearful of what we might miss, this one experience that really is going to make life worth living. You know, serious FOMO, fear of missing out, and YOLO, you know, like as we talk about, those things go together. Um, you only live once. You only live once in fear of missing out. Um, getting what I want... And praying this prayer are so at odds. But it's, it's really good news um, that you don't have to be God, that you don't have to be a superhero, that you can let go of all those things and not have to worry about your identity, not have to worry about your finances, not have to worry about all those little things that get you worried in the morning, get me worried, that make me paralyzed, um, we are constantly on the hunt for something to fulfill us 
because the burden of being God is on our shoulders, and no one can bear that burden. Um, that's why we have such troubles in our day with marriage, with identifying what marriage is, with sexuality, identity, gender problems. They're all rooted in the same thing, that we want to define those things for ourselves rather than freeing us up to let God define them. Even if we feel at odds with that, it's freeing to say, okay, I don't know why I feel like this, but I'm going to let you define this. And I'm just going to do that every day. Um, and that reminds me of just like what C.S. Lewis said, like that we have to pray and give ourselves over to God every day like we've never done it before. Like we've never done it before. Um, and, and slowly over time when we start praying, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. We can actually see our desires slowly being changed. That our feelings are going to come and go, but that constant bending our will to God is actually freedom. Um, it's actually freedom because we're defining reality according to God's kingdom, the thing that's never going to be changed by all our horrible intentions and good intentions and foolishness and sin of this present earth. Um, it's freeing us up to let God be God and let him define reality even if it goes against our feelings. So don't trust your feelings when you get up in the morning. Don't think that those things are real. Um, yes, you might have good reasons for having those emotions and feelings, but the most bedrock reality is what God thinks of you in Christ. And that is the thing that he is so anxious to bring about in this world. That God's will is going to be done and it's going to be played out among us. This is still God's world where his will is being done. And so when we pray this prayer, um, we're not withdrawing from the world, as we, as we said last week. We're not you know, floating up as a Buddhist monk into the, into the ethereal plane, uh, ascending our body, ascending our, our problems in this world. Um, rather, we're being thrust into the world and seeing God's working in the midst of all those things. God's work in the midst of all our strife and sin and the... And, and learning each day to take our wills less seriously and his will a little more seriously. Praying your will be done is recognizing that prayer is not about achieving our will, but God's. Even Jesus, as a human, fervently prayed to be delivered from the things that he was about to suffer on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus got a no to that answer, to his, as an answer to his prayer. Paul prayed that he would be delivered from this thorn in his flesh that was some sort of physical disability many times. And he was, his prayer was answered that God would just comfort him in the midst of those things, that his grace was sufficient, and he was delivered to death. That might be the answer that God gives. It might not be. But the enduring of all truly Christian prayer, the ending of all true, truly Christian prayer is the same thing that Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. 
because he was enabled to entrust himself to his good father, and we are enabled to entrust ourselves as well. Because God is the hero of our story, he can even use sinful, weak people like us for his glory and our good. Any questions or thoughts about your will be done before we get into our the next section? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes, and that's so comforting. That's why we need each other as Christians because sometimes we need to be called out of ourselves and we need to speak this word into each other's lives and see how faithful he's been, not just in the Bible, but in our lives. Um, that's a great point, great point. All right, so give us today our daily bread. Um, any notion that Christianity is this otherworldly trip into never-never land, as we said, is, is really dispelled as we see that the Lord Prayer gets down to the nitty-gritty and, and boldly asking God for bread. Um, it's a daily reminder that we pray this prayer that our lives, like bread, are, are gifts from God. They're things that are we are daily dependent on from, from God. And if you remember back to the story of the Hebrews in the wilderness where they're given manna, they would have starved had not God sent that gift to them. We would perish were it not for this daily, really ordinary, mundane gift from God, but it's so essential. Um, and therefore, we are, we are enabled, Jesus said, to boldly go to our Father and ask for our daily needs. What an amazing thing that is. God is not uninterested in how he's made us. He is so interested in our humanness that he wants us to ask for something as small and seemingly insignificant as bread. Um, after talking about God and heaven, this prayer now reminds us that we are really, that we are finite, fleshly beings who live by bread. Um, and our salvation is coming to this realization that our lives, just like this bread, are gifts. Gifts from God and our, and our, and our lives are daily dependent on this bread given by a God who loves to feed us. If we think back to the, the gospel stories of Jesus and some of the many miracles that he did, uh, he would see people who didn't have daily bread and he would have compassion on them. And if you, th- if you remember, just like the story of the five loaves and the two fish, he was able to take that simple thing and feed this whole crowd because he had so much compassion for them. 
And they all ate and they were filled. Jesus is someone who had compassion for hungry people. And the Savior for whom hunger is really an offense in some sense to His kingdom. Um, Jesus came and the sign that He was coming of His kingdom was feeding people and healing them. And He commands His disciples to give them something to eat. Um, Israel was given all these promises throughout the whole Old Testament that they would know the Messiah and the coming of God's kingdom at their table, who they would eat with. When the Messiah would come, He would be the one who would feed the hungry. And expecting God's kingdom is is expecting a meal for those who are hungry and forgotten. The, The prophet Isaiah said that there will come forth in all the earth, this great shout that everyone who thirsts come to the waters. You who have no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. That was to be the sign of God's coming kingdom. That's small and small print seen in these miracles. That's in small print seen in God giving us our daily bread. And the church is always teaching us that through this prayer, that our lives are really fragile, dependent creations, but God cares about all that. That God gives us what we need, even when it's something so mundane and as essential as bread. Um, in one of his sermons, the church father, Augustine, said that something to the effect that when the pastor prays before the bread on the Lord's Supper on Sunday, it's not that by virtue of what he's saying, by virtue of the prayer, that this ordinary bread is turned into this great ordinance and sacrament. There's something strange and extraordinary thing that God is doing. Rather, it's merely this prayer recognizing that bread is a gift of a loving God. And God is setting it aside, and therefore it's holy. Um, and our response to like this thing that God is using something like bread in, in on, on Sunday is that it seems like it's a very odd thing. That the bread that, looks, that we see up there looks very suspiciously like the bread that we might eat for breakfast or toast. Um, and at breakfast, it's hard to think that this bread is holy. And I think that's, that's true. That's a good point. But after praying this prayer at the bread on Sunday, what we're being taught is that perhaps we'll start eating our bread during the week a little differently. Um, the bread at breakfast is different from the bread that we eat in the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, by faith, we are made participants in what God is doing in the world. Um, we are brought into, through this, this different kind of bread, into God's story of salvation. And He's uniting us with Christ. He's uniting us with each other. And this really is a mystery how this happens. 
the more we understand God's unrelenting love that is really made manifest in this meal, the deeper this mystery becomes to us. Um, that through this Lord's Supper, God is actually setting us aside, making us holy, so that our daily bread is sanctified to us as we eat it. So that everything that we do through prayer and thanksgiving is holy to God. That God is transforming our lives, even the most ordinary thing like bread on Monday morning's breakfast, is turned into a sign of God's presence and God's daily delight in us. Isn't that amazing? Like God, God is on Sunday really making our lives holy so that the daily ordinary things we can say, wow, this is a sign that God delights in us. This is a sign of God's presence in our lives that he's putting food on our table just like he does in the Lord's Supper. That's why as Christians, when we say what it means to be a Christian, what we believe about God, we can point to something like baptism. We can point to something like the Lord's Supper, where we can point to something like coming around on Sunday and telling each other these stories of God's grace. So that like Joseph, we can see God's divine presence remarkably, extraordinarily seen in all these mundane things. Um, what Jesus is doing in the miracle of the making all of these 5,000 people eat from this five loaves of bread and two fish, he's writing in large script what he does in our lives. Those are the things he's, he's really giving us back our lives as holy before him. Those ordinary mundane things as the means of our ordinary praise and service before him. Because God has, has died for us on the cross and given us the sacrifice of guilt and atonement for our sins, all that is left to do in our lives is a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to receive his good gifts like our daily bread. And that's why we talk about something like the Lord's Supper when we talk about giving us our daily bread. Um, it is only after, in many ways, we are being, after we are transformed and put into God's story that we first become thankful. When we learn to become thankful, that's when we see everything is coming from his hand. We become living sacrifices of praise so that we can pray this prayer in this way. That we're seeing and we're praying for God's daily presence among us. Um, one of the catechisms that has this great explanation of, on, on, this, on this section, and it says that without God's blessing on our food, even something daily like that is actually a curse to us. Um, which is kind of odd-sounding to our ears. But I think it really gets at this idea that without receiving even something daily like our bread with a thankful heart, with praise, and having God's blessing upon it, those things can be the very distractions 
that keep us from God and that keep us from understanding Him and knowing Him. The very good gifts of having a car, of having a house or a family, without God's constant blessing and, and, and Him making us thankful for those things, actually become the distractions that are cursed, that curse our lives, that make us frantically look to those things as if they, those things can fill us up. Um, and so that's why we have to constantly pray this prayer to thank God for our daily bread, to recognize that He's the one who gives it to us and ask Him to bless it when we pray, when we eat each meal. Do you have a question? Oh, no. Oh, sorry, I thought you raised your hand. Um, no, it's okay. <laughs> um, another thing we have to know is that we pray for our daily bread. I think a more accurate translation would be that it's sufficient or enough. This, this prayer is about finding God as our sufficient provider. And I think that to pray for more would tempt us to live as if we were, in some sense, we're needing a lot more. If you think back to the story of the manna in the wilderness, the Hebrews were permitted to gather only as much as they were needed for each day. And daily we must reach out to God who daily reaches out to us. In a certain sense, we, we as a society, live abhorring any idea of dependence on God or anyone else. And yet every time we ask for God to forgive us his bread, we're acknowledging not only our dependence upon him, but our dependence upon others. There's no bread that comes to our table that didn't take the work and the sacrifice and the gifts of strangers that we don't even know. Um, it's very easy in our day to just like go to the store, get some bread, and not ever think about the whole huge line of things that got it to our table. Because we don't see them, we don't go to the farmer, we don't go to the baker, we don't see any of those things that happen. But God is so present and active in our lives Wearing all of us and all our gifts like gloves on his hands. He's the one through all these things, through all these different people, getting us our bread on our table, providing for us. So we know none of us are self-sufficient. None of us can go on in life without his good providence, without each other. We're not autonomous, freestanding individuals. We need tons of people just to get our food on our table every day. We need there's thousands of people in the process. When, I, when you go to Trader Joe's or Vons or Aldi's, like there's thousands of people that are in this huge process to get us those things. Um, but God is so delighting in doing that that He's working in his, working in this world in His providence, all these different people to bless you. He's using all these different people to bless you every single day. Um, oh man, we're out of time. And as rich people in America, it is very difficult for us to see that. It's very difficult for us not to think we're self-sufficient, that we got here on our own. But as we pray this prayer, we're seeing how indebted we are to each other and to God. 
We, we are praying for the grace in our culture of overconsumption to say, give us the grace to know when enough is enough. And help us to say no when the world entices us with so much. And also to be grateful for all the people that brought us our food. This prayer is about contentment as much as it is a prayer about finding God as our sufficient provider. That we can learn to be content. Um, and just wrapping up for today, um, God is causing us to pray this prayer for His will to be done, seeing how He is at work giving us these amazing gifts of salvation and even daily bread. Uh, because these gifts are given with deep pockets of responsibility. Uh, the deeper the pockets, the deeper the responsibility. We need to learn this, that, that, that money, that all these things, that bread, all these things do us no good if we don't recognize the giver that gives them. All these things do us no good if we don't recognize His activity in the world. Um, all of these things that we have are merely on loan to us so that, like Joseph, who's given all these amazing gifts and talents that brought him up to the height of, of the world's empire, it was so that he could save thousands of people from starvation. That's why God put him there. That's why God puts us in our vocations and our callings, so that we can bless those around us. So that these, once we actually get over ourselves, our own stories, and not worrying about whether or not we decide our identity, our meaning, our happiness, and realize those things are given to us by God, we're freed up for the first time to love our neighbor. We're freed up for the first time to love and serve those around us because God is at work through them. He's wearing us like His gloves to bring all these good gifts to those around us. Any questions or thoughts, uh, rebukes, rebuttals before we close for the day? All right, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for how it daily interrupts us. We thank You, Lord, for those things. We count it joy, Lord, when You bring trials into our lives. Our weaknesses are what we boast in because of Christ. We pray, Lord, that You give us the faith, the patience, and the hope to see You at work, even in the midst of those interruptions, that You really using those times, those moments to, to make us fruitful. Those are where we actually can lean into you and into each other to, so that we can actually be fruitful for the first time. So we pray, Lord, that as we receive from your hand your many good gifts, even as we go into worship today, that we would learn to see you at work in our own lives and respond in repentance and faith like David, that we can respond like Joseph, proclaiming and testifying to what you have done, that we have meant all these things for evil, but you brought about so many good things, and your will will be done. In your, in your son's name we pray. Amen.